So tonight, um, yeah, we're going to have kind of the talk. Um, I know, right? Every time Sam's gone, it's like, all right, we're going to give Jared that, we're going to give Steve that, but no, we're all good. I assume most of you guys in here know the mechanics of the birds and the bees, so we're not going to have that talk, all right? If you don't, then Brian can kind of help you figure all that out. He used to be a teacher, and um, he's good for that. So we are going to talk, though, about sexuality. We're going to talk about purity. We're going to talk about God's design in these areas. All that really light, easy-to-talk-about stuff, okay? You guys, this is a topic that is all over in the world, and it's one that we should not avoid in the church. It's not one that we should avoid in ministry or even in context of conversation, conversations with other friends and brothers and sisters in Christ. So um, I'm actually excited to talk about this. It doesn't bother me in the least to talk about this topic. I hope it's uh, something that is um, you know, uh, really refreshing to you as well to just kind of hear an overview of God's design in this area as well. Um, Pastor Sam said something about, I dare you to try to go longer than Pastor Andrew. I'm not sure what that meant, but we'll see how it goes. Um, all right, so uh, tonight, you guys, we're going to be looking at two primary texts. Uh, the first, we're going we're gonna to go sort of back and forth between these. One is 1 Corinthians 6, chapter 18 to 20. We're going to spend just a little bit of time in that. But the other one we're going to talk about primarily is Proverbs chapter 5. Now, I know we're going through a Proverbs series here, so you guys are like, oh, I was hoping he was going to say Proverbs because otherwise I was going to be totally thrown off. Yes, we will go through Proverbs and it's going to be in chapter 5. A little backdrop to the book of Corinthians. Paul, the author, was in Corinth at one point. And I imagine Paul, I visualize Paul walking through the streets of Corinth on these cobblestone roads, and Corinth was an incredibly wealthy city. Corinth is so wealthy because it sat on an isthmus of land between the east-west landmass and the north-south uh, watermass. And so all the sea travel and all the land travel for trading all passed through Corinth. And so all of the revenue that they got by the trading fairs and other things generated a tremendous amount of wealth for the city. But it wasn't just a, a, a wealthy city. It was a very self-indulgent and self-centered one. I imagine Paul walking down the streets, taking in the sights and the sounds, hearing the catcalls of the, the many prostitutes, hearing the worship to one of 50 pagan gods that were part of Corinth at that time. It was a place that was like a party that would not end. There was a light, it was like a red light district. It was a city that had gone wild. This is Corinth. This is the backdrop to what Paul is speaking about in 1 Corinthians 6. The city was so immoral that the word Corinthianize literally meant to just commit sexual immorality, sexual acts of immorality. And a Corinthian girl, a Corinthian woman, was a synonymous word for a prostitute. That's how corrupt the city was. Now as we look around the culture that we live in, we can sometimes feel a little bit like we're living in a Corinthian culture because our society seems to be accelerating exponentially in this hypersexualized content and tolerance and experimentation. 
a couple of statistics. Did you know that 75% of Americans have had sex outside of marriage by the age of 20? By the age of 44, that percentage rises to 95%. Again, that's outside of marriage. 80% of college students have participated in some form of what's called uncommitted sexual behavior. Sometimes it's referred to as hookups. 40 million Americans regularly view pornography, and one adult website reports 110 million viewers a day. Don Hobbs and Gordon Gallup analyzed the lyrics of 174 songs that appeared in the Billboard Top 10. These are songs from like country, rap, R&B, just the different categories. Reproduction was everywhere in the lyrics. In fact, 92% of the songs had sexualized content. And of those, there was an average of 8.76 sexual references per song. Sexualization is everywhere, and we don't even have time to get into the advertising culture or the movie or streaming shows, videos, or some of the different apps and dating apps and other things that are out there today. That's a whole different entire set of statistics altogether. Given the age of all the people in this room, I have no doubt that every single one of us has formulated in some way an idea or sort of this positional perspective of sexuality. Maybe it's based on how you grew up. Maybe it's based on you know, the different experiences you've had or just the different viewpoints that have been taught to you. Whatever it might be, we all have kind of this perspective on it. And it probably falls within a range of people on one side saying, well, this kind of hypersexualized thing, it's just what it is, it's inevitable, and we just have to live with it. To the other side of the spectrum, sort of saying, you know what, I really despise this idea of sexuality because it's just so perverted in our culture, and I'm just so sick of it, and I'm just really, I'm really turned off by sexuality as a whole. And I think as we go through our evening and our time together, we're going to, I hope we come to the realization that neither one of those extremes is good and neither one of those extremes is the position that God himself would take. So let's turn, if you would, to uh, Proverbs chapter 5. I'm going to read this in a couple of different chunks. I'm going to just make a few comments about this as we read this. Starting in chapter 5, verse 1, the author here, King Solomon, he says, My son, pay attention to wisdom. Turn your ear to my words of insight. Now you'll notice that in this very first verse, the author is saying, specifically, pay attention. Specifically, turn your ear to what I'm about to say. He does that as an emphasis to say, everything I'm about to tell you is really, really important. And I want you to dial it in because you can't miss this. And he says that, by, by giving this sort of dual emphasis right away in, in uh, verse 1. In verse 2, he goes on to say that you may maintain discretion and your lips may preserve knowledge. Now, the word maintain and preserve indicates that knowledge and uh, uh, discretion already existed in the mind of that, the hearer. So what the author is saying is pay attention because if you don't, all the things I'm about to talk about 
could cause you to lose your discretion and to abandon the knowledge of what you already know is right and what is wrong. In verse uh, 3 through 6, it says, For the lips of the adulterous woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. She gives no thought to the way of life. Her paths wander aimlessly, but she does not know it. Now, let me just say out of the gate with this section, this is not woman blaming. This is not woman shaming. That's not what this section is about at all. Instead, what this particular verse 3 through 6 section is about is describing the allure of sexual desires and the spiritual outcomes, the spiritual consequences of pursuing them in a sinful way. In verse 7, you see once again in the middle of this passage, you see again a, a dual plea to listen and to tune in. It says, Now then, my sons, listen to me. Do not turn away from what I say. It's like a mirror of verse 1. He's saying, Look, are you still paying attention? If you're not, make sure, dial it in, listen up, turn your ear toward me. Don't turn away from what I say. Then in verse 8 to 14, the author says, keep a path far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you lose your honor to others and your dignity to the one who is cruel. Lest strangers feast on your wealth and your toil enrich the house of another. At the end of your life, you will groan when your flesh and body are spent. You will say, how I hated discipline, how my heart spurned correction. I would not obey my teachers or turn my ear to my instructors. And I was soon in serious trouble in the assembly of God's people. The author is now emphasizing consequences. Before, in, in verses 3 through 6, he was talking about spiritual consequences. And now in 8 through 14, he's talking about consequences that are very direct and very personal in the right here, right now life of the individual that is reading it. Sexual immorality, the author is saying, can lead to things like a loss of honor, a loss of dignity. It can affect our testimony for the Lord. It can lead to even monetary loss as well as a hardened heart and a defensive posture and one that's not teachable. And finally, it can cause tension or even fracturing of relationships within the body of Christ. There's all sorts of fallout. There's all sorts of messes that can be made when we pursue this thing outside of God's best, God's will, God's purposes for it. So that is up through verse 14. Now, we're going to see a little pivot that happens here. There's a, there's a shift that takes place in uh, the next half of this proverb. So far, there's been this sort of negative viewpoint, the, the negative outcomes that span cultures and generations. It's not just limited to the hearers at this, the time of this writing, but even relevant to us today, those outcomes are real things that can and often do happen in our lives when we don't follow God's will for purity and sexuality. But this shift that happens is God not leaving it in the negative. And he doesn't do that because God doesn't take a negative view of sexuality. He doesn't. 
God actually takes a positive view of sexuality, but the key to it, and you're going to hear me repeat this phrase on a number of occasions, is that it has to be the right thing in the right context, and that's always right. So the right thing in the right context is always right. If we remove either of those two pieces of the equation, then the outcome is not right any longer. So in verses 15 through 20 is, is where we see the shift. But what we'll see is referenced in verse 18, that these verses actually describe intimacy as God designed it within the context of marriage. Because he talks about uh, the wife of their youth. By the way, um, sexuality is talked about a lot in the Bible. This is just a couple of really brief uh, areas that it's talked about. But this is the topic that is talked about in many, many places. Old Testament, New Testament, many of the books of the Bible talk about this topic. In some of the examples where it's addressed in Scripture, some are descriptive accounts of how people have participated in sexual behavior that was sinful. But just because the Bible describes something that happened does not mean that God endorses what happened. It's a descriptive account. It just described what happened, okay? There's descriptions all over in the Bible about people doing all sorts of evil things, but that does not mean that God has given his nod to it. But if you look at all the other places in Scripture where it talks about God's prescriptive instruction, that is God prescribing, God endorsing, God giving his nod to the things of sexual matters, every single time it's prescriptive, we see it within the context of marriage and we see it in the context of a man and a woman. There's no exceptions to that in, this, in Scripture. And so we see time and time and time and time again, God's design for sexuality is within the context of marriage with a man and a woman. So let me read um, verses 15 through 20. And it says, Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well, that is your own marriage. <clears throat> Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in public squares? In other words, are we going to share this idea of sexuality just openly with anybody? Let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Why, my son, be intoxicated with another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? There's really no way to read these verses and other verses that talk about God's prescriptive aspects of sexuality. Other examples, by the way, would be 1 Corinthians 7, um, maybe the entirety of Song of Solomon and many, many other places. But there's no, there's no way to read those and to conclude that God is somehow against sexuality, that he is um, opposed to it. It's just not true. St um, within the uh, whole idea of um, sexuality coming onto the scene of humanity, do you know how that came onto the scene? God actually designed it. God is the one that orchestrated it and invented it. It's not a byproduct of the fall. The byproduct of the fall are the things that God intended for good, but we've corrupted and taken out of the context. We've no longer had the right thing in the right context, 
And that is what the byproduct of the fall is. But God himself is the designer of sexuality. Imagine for uh, just a moment as we think about this idea of the right context and the right thing. Imagine that you're sitting on a comfortable recliner with a blanket and a cup of hot cocoa and there's a roaring fire in front of you and it's warm and it's comforting and it, it's, uh, it, it's an environment that you just feel like you could spend hours in and it's just really a, a very, very nourishing environment. Now I want you to imagine for a moment that you take that fire, any portion of it, doesn't matter if it's you know, a little bit of it, a lot of it, doesn't matter, and you take that fire and you move it to a different context of the home. Maybe it's a living room. Maybe it's the kitchen. Maybe it's the, uh, the curtains. What happens if you remove that fire from the context that it's designed to be in and you move it to a different context of the home? It's a disaster, right? There's destruction. There's pain. There's hurt. People get hurt. There's a lot of fallout from the fact that we've taken something that was good and helpful and enjoyable and we've moved it into a context that it wasn't designed to be in. And now that same thing in a different context has led to destruction. Let me just make a little parenthetical side comment about um, people who are married. There's some married people in the room or people who will someday be married, which is uh, a majority of you in here. Sometimes we married people play this game of the grass is always greener, right? You know what I mean? Like there's this comparative game of, you know, I wonder what it's like to, you know, uh, be in a relationship with this person instead of my spouse. And, and there's this kind of grass is always greener. That's a lie. Statistically, people are not any happier in subsequent marriages than they are in their first. Because the grass is always greener game is to be played in this way. The grass is always greener where it's watered. It's not on the other side of the fence. The grass is always greenest where we water it. So what God is calling us to do, whether you're in a relationship, if you're in a marriage, uh, if you one day will be married, invest in that marriage. Get to know each other. Hang out. Create hobbies together. Connect emotionally and intimately and use that time and opportunity to build into that marriage. Don't stop dating. The grass is always greener where it is watered. Now, of course, there's exceptions to this. If somebody's in an abusive relationship or somebody is uh, habitually unfaithful, God allows some provisions for stepping outside of that because he doesn't want us in a, in a situation where we're going to be hurt. That's a whole uh, different topic, but I do want us to know, first and foremost, that God wants us to invest well in the gift that he's given us in a spouse. The very end cap of this uh, passage is in verses 21 to 23. Uh, in this, we're reminded that with God, there's no such thing as a secret sin. With God, there's no such thing as a secret sin. Let me read the, these last three verses to us. For your ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all of your paths. The evil deeds of the wicked ensnare them. The cords of their sin hold them fast. For lack of discipline, they will die, led astray by their own great folly. We see a similar thing in Hebrews 
where it says, nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. (laughs) Read verses like this and you think, Maybe our reaction might be a little bit like, oh, dang. Like, God knows, like, everything, like, my thoughts, like, everything. But I think we need to flip the script on that a little bit. I think instead of worrying about and thinking that God is waiting to just drop the hammer on us, I think it's a much more beneficial thing instead to allow this reality of God knowing all things, that nothing is hidden from his sight, that even the things that we do when we think we're alone, God is fully aware of. I think that reality ought to drive us to be very, very intentional and very introspective on our view toward things like sexuality and the decisions that we make. Maybe it ought to make us ask questions like, what does God, who's my my biggest supporter, my biggest cheerleader, my biggest champion in my life, what would he think about this? Is this thing that I'm tempted with right now, if I carry, carry this through, is that going to help me become the best version of who God made me to be? Is this, is this really God's best design for me to, to follow this, this temptation in this area? So what do we do? If, if God created sex... God created human beings as sexual uh, creatures, uh, sexual um, beings, then how are we supposed to function? How are we supposed to operate in a way that honors God, especially because we live in a world that doesn't honor him, and it's a world that looks a whole lot like Corinth? How do we do that? What are we supposed to do as Christians? Now, the first thing I would say, it's critical to know that God loves us and God wants what's best for us. There's sometimes this sort of um, misconception that God wants to kind of withhold these desirable things for us. Well, if God designed me with all this desire for these things, then why would he withhold that? Because he wants his best for us, and he understands the right thing, he understands the right context every time. So as we look at that, I think of Psalm 48.11 where it says, God withholds no good thing from those who walk with him. This means that whether God says yes to something or whether God says no to something, he does that because he wants what's best for us. That answer, yes or no, is the most beneficial thing for us, at least at that time. And in the case of sexual desire and sexual temptation, the answer often can be yes but not in this context and not at this time. See, God is always pursuing our best and he's always making decisions based on his best for us. I have a mini golden doodle. Our family has a mini golden doodle. She's about 35 pounds. She's super cute. Her name is Piper. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit like, you know, like the dog uh, disciplinary in our house, but she knows I'm a softie, and that's the, that's the problem. So every time, like, eating or if I'm, like, you know, cleaning off one of these rotisserie chickens or something, she's just kind of looking at me like, what's up, right? <laughs> so there's this, um, 
there's this little 35-pound dog that hangs out with me every time I, I have food. And let's just say that I was eating dark chocolate and maybe a, a, a bunch of grapes, okay? Now, if you know anything about dogs, I could be feeding my dog chocolate and grapes, and how good would it be for little Piper? Not good, right? Those are two things that are actually have high toxicity for, for dogs, for whatever reason. So the more of that that I give to her, she would gobble up every ounce of what I gave to her, and she would like it. I've seen her do it. If you drop grapes on the floor, it's like gone, all right? But just because she likes the grapes, just because she likes the dark chocolate, doesn't mean it's good for her. In fact, as she consumes that, it's the wrong thing in the right context. And the right context is, yeah, I've got a, a family that loves me and wants to give me treats, but it's the wrong thing. Now, what if you recontextualize that? For human beings, dark chocolate is actually very healthful. There's a lot of flavonoids and other, you know, oids and uh, things that, <laughs> whatever. I, I read online somewhere. It's good for you. I just, I justify it. I eat chocolate. Grapes. I mean, it, it's nourishing. It's enjoyable. It's delicious. Those are all good things, but it's all about context, right? In that context, it's the same food, different context. In one context, it causes harm. In another context, it's actually beneficial. But here's the scary thing, you guys. You and I, we can't be trusted with ourself. We can't be trusted with ourself. You know, here's what I mean by that. If our gauge, our barometer of what's right and wrong is merely based on what my desires, my pleasures, my longings are, I'm in a lot of trouble. Because like you, I desire and long for a whole bunch of things that aren't good for me. I'm tempted by a whole bunch of things that would cause a whole bunch of havoc and destruction in my life. So I'm a really bad barometer, a really bad gauge of what I ought to do and what I ought not to do because I have these desires that are waging war in my heart, and so do you. And so what we need instead is an external source, something outside of ourselves that is a trustworthy source that keeps our magnetic needle pointed in the right direction because there's these magnetic forces that just want to constantly pull us off the course that God has designed for us. And, and God provides that to us. As a lot of you know, I have a, a, a background in aviation. Um, I spent many, many years as a flight instructor. Um, one of the most difficult ratings for students to obtain, there's different ratings uh, as they advance along um, the aviation spectrum, but one of the most difficult ratings to obtain is called the instrument rating. And the instrument rating means that you're flying solely by reference to instruments. So if you go on a overcast, foggy, cloudy day, and you launch off, on a, on a clear day, you can just see the horizon, you can see the city lights, you can see the roads, and you can just, you know, you have this visual reference. On an instrument day, instru IMC they call it, you enter into a cloud bank, and you can't see any further than the nose of your airplane. Now, a lot of people think the biggest challenge with this is that how do you even know, how you, you know where you're going and how to get there? I mean, you do have to navigate to your destination. If you're going to Tulsa, you have to navigate there, and you have to line yourself up with the runway and be at the right altitudes and not hit rocks and other things that you know airplanes don't like. 
But even more importantly than that, the navigation, we can figure that out. We've got instruments for that. But more important than that is called aircraft attitude. I'm not talking about attitude. I'm talking about attitude like up, down, left, right, uh, bank, pitch. See, what happens is if you're on a, um, you know, if you're in a car or if you're in any other, uh, you know, limited plane type of vehicle, your body can actually sense when you're in a turn. There's, there's uh, components of your inner ear. There's like fluid and cilia and all sorts of stuff that when you turn, you're using your visual reference that's corroborated with what you're feeling in your inner ear, and you can sense. So if you close your eyes and somebody starts turning a car, you're like, yep, you're turning the left. You, you can just sense that. It's not the case when you're in an airplane. Because when you're in coordinated flight, all the forces of flight, when they're equal, the centrifugal force keeps the airplane uh, turning as it comes around. But everything in the plane has the exact same force on it throughout the entire turn. So if this water was completely full, you could put that on the dash of the plane. I've done this with uh, students. You can make a 45-degree bank turn, and this water will not spill a drop because of the forces of flight. Now, here's what happens. People get into the clouds that aren't trained for it, and they can't really sense when they're in the turn or when they're not. So after a very short amount of time, the attitude of their plane is changing, but they can't really sense it, and they try to overcorrect for it, and the whole thing just gets messed up. Statistically, between 30 and 45 seconds is all the time it takes for a non-instrument rated pilot to get into what's called a graveyard spiral. Doesn't sound good, does it? It's not good. Essentially, they, they, they get into a spot where uh, their, their plane is continuing to, to spiral in tighter and tighter and tighter circles, losing altitude until it eventually hits the ground. Right? Happy story, right? No, not really. But, but that's what happens, and that's why it's so important for this training. But in the context of what we're talking about is that what the pilots are feeling, that th this is straight up and down. Even though if they were to break out of the clouds, they're looking like this. But they feel like, no, I'm straight up and down. But their feeling is a deceiver. It's a deceiver because they're in a graveyard spiral and the clock is ticking. Our feeling about things just because I feel drawn, tempted, attracted to, whatever the case might be, does not mean that it's the right thing. In fact, oftentimes, our own hearts and our own feelings are a deceiver, and we have to be willing to recognize those things, because trusting our feelings can be catastrophic. So God gives us two primary things as external sources. These are the, kind of the primary instruments that keep us on course and keep the attitude of our plane where it ought to be. One is his word, the word of God, the Bible. And the second is his spirit. The second is his spirit. To look at these, we're going to real briefly look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 to 20. Now the very first thing that um, is said in verse 18... I'll give you a second to turn there. Paul says four simple words. Flee from sexual immorality. Flee from sexual immorality. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about this word flee because this is a complex Greek word with some really 
deep renderings and the expert interpretation of the word flee literally means to flee, right? Pretty complex. Flee means to flee, to run away, to to literally turn tail and run, to get away from whatever is causing that temptation. This word really can't be translated in in the passive. It actually requires intentionality and action on behalf of the person that's hearing it. To illustrate this, um, imagine that you and a few of your friends are going to um, do some stargazing, all right? And you load up in the car, and you find some back road, and you go way, way back in the woods where there's no light pollution, because you want to see the stars and the Milky Way. It's just amazing if you guys have ever seen that. And you're all sitting on the hood of the car, and you're hanging out, you're having a great time. And um, about an hour or so into it, you hear a little rustling in the woods off to your right. You're like, oh, that was kind of weird. And then you hear this low, guttural, kind of growling sound. And then you sort of sheepishly grab the you know, flashlight of your phone light and you kind of shine it in there. And you see a couple sets of eyes that are sort of glowing back at you uh, as you uh, shine that light into the woods. How many of you are going to stick around and sit on the hood of that car and be like, oh, I wonder what that is. Let's just hang out and check it out. In fact, let's go walk over there and see. Nobody's going to do that, right? You're going to get in the car, you're going to hightail back out of there, and you are going to, you're going to leave that scene as, as quick as you can. That's the, that's the rendering of this word flee. That's also how it was used in verse uh, 8 from our, our last passage in Proverbs 5. It says, keep a path far from her. Do not go even near to the door of her house. So, you, so this whole idea is that we don't flirt with these things. We don't sort of dip our toe in the water. We flee. We get out of there. We keep a wide path around anything that could potentially cause us damage or destruction in our life. Moving on into the second half of uh, verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? One of the most common inaccurate theological statements that well-meaning Christians make is that all sins are equal. All sins are equal. You guys heard that before? You know, you know it's true that any one sin separates us from God and, and generates a need for a Savior. But at the same time, different sins do vary in their scope and in their severity. Sexual sin, Paul is saying, is a unique sin in this verse. You see, it's a sin against our own bodies. God created our bodies, ourselves, in His image. But the only part of His creation that He said, I'm making you in, in my image. And the second thing that, that God says is that you are the temple for my spirit. Remember in the Old Testament, there's the, the temple and the very inner spot was the Holy of Holies and that was uh, God's dwelling place. And then it was the tabernacle as it moved around during the wandering years. It still had the Holy of Holies. When the new covenant came, when Christ came, the atonement was done. He gave the Holy Spirit and he sent the Holy Spirit where did he send the Holy Spirit? 
into our hearts, into, into believers. Our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so what God is saying is, don't desecrate my temple. You are my temple. You are my sacred place. You're, you're my, my sacred dwelling place. And I don't want you to desecrate that in any way. The last uh, verse and a half, 19, second half, it says, You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. God paid the highest price that could possibly be paid. He crushed his own son because of my sin and because of your sin. And Paul says elsewhere in um, Corinthians that we are Christ and Christ is God's, that we don't belong just to ourselves, that we are God, we are part of his family, we are part of his precious possession, and that we ought to honor God with our body. Okay, so what do we do? Here's, here's kind of where the rubber meets the road. Like, okay, I get it, Steve, I, I understand all the, the, the biblical case for it, but how do we do this? Because this is a really hard world to live in and to function in this way. So I came up with four tactics, and they all start with A. They're four A's that help us to um, hold our ground and to maintain God's desire. I'm going to try to get through these uh, fairly quick because I know that um, you know, it's one of those time things, and I'm really not trying to beat Andrew's record, uh, despite what I said. So the first A is association. Association. This is broken up into two parts, personal association and situational association. The first is personal. How do we associate? In other words, what are the things that we identify with, the things that we most want to portray to other people? These are the things that drive the decisions that we make. Um, so everybody has some effort into maintaining some sort of a, um, an image in their life. How do you hope that other people perceive you? Maybe it's being really smart or being really athletic or really you know, um, funny or um, really hipster or whatever, uh, you know, Maybe it's dressing to accentuate parts of your body. Uh, there's all sorts of ways that we try to portray this to other people. How are we associating ourselves um, to the world around us? What if, and here's the challenge to that part of it, as a Christian, how centrally are you and am, am I, how centrally are we associating ourselves as being a Christ follower, as being a child of God? How centrally are we associating ourselves with being an image bearer and his temple, God's temple, his sacred place? Because there's a direct correlation to us identifying first and foremost as a Christ follower and as the image bearer of his and our ability to stand up under temptation, particularly sexual temptation. Because we're identifying in every other way that the world values that we're going to probably succumb in a lot of ways to what the world's values are. So are you, am I, are we identifying primarily as a child of God? The second association is situational. Situational. One of the biggest dangers of sin is that we tend to associate sin with the pleasure that it brings rather than the consequences that it brings. If anybody tells you that sin, some sins in particular are not pleasurable, enjoyable, or 
brings some degree of satisfaction, they don't know what they're talking about. But are we associating sin with that pleasure? If we are, then we're only associating with that little whisper of time that's going to be short-lived, and all the consequences behind that are things that we have to live with, that long-term. So what would it look like if you and I started associating sinful things with the consequences and, and not so much associating them with the pleasure of them? And we do that by thinking this through as if we've already carried through with the, te- the temptation. Feel the pain as if it's already been caused. Think through it as if we've already made that choice. Think through all the, the, the train wreck of debris that would be left behind in our life if we just carried through with this thing. And when we start thinking through and we're tempted by some things, we're like, dude, that is not worth it at all. I want nothing to do with this debris field in my life. For, for this little whisper of time, are you kidding me? That's the, that's the worst trade in the whole world. Sometimes we can even do this by observing the life of other people. And I don't mean this to, to, to be coarse, but a lot of people make a lot of bad choices. And in all my years of you know, being a pastor and counseling and, and different things, um, you just see a lot of stuff. You hear a lot of stuff. And personally, I sometimes walk away from that and be like, you know, Lord, let that not ever be the case in my life because I see how much damage it, it has caused in their life. And so we can begin to associate the sin with the consequence and not with the pleasure. If we do this, by the way, um, right now, we still have a very incredible weapon that is in our arsenal, and it's called choice. Because if we go through those consequences in our mind, we, we kind of come out the backside of that and realize, you know what, I haven't made that choice yet, and, and I... Um, and I know that if I can think through these things now on this side of it, then it's going to help me so much more to make the choice that, that honors the Lord. The second A in our uh, four tactics is an action plan. If you were to ask people that found themselves in a really bad situation or having um, made really bad decisions about something, most of the time they're going to tell you it was not just this one-time immediate uh, occurrence that happened. A lot of times there's a sort of frog in a kettle event where one decision led to another, led to another, led to another. Kind of like a train that picks up speed. The faster a train is going, the more kinetic energy it has, the more difficult it is to stop that train. See, if we don't have a clearly defined action plan for what we're going to do to minimize and handle temptations, it might just be a matter of time before we find ourselves out of bounds in some way or the other. Now, an action plan is most effective when it's clearly defined in its boundaries, it has clearly defined boundaries, and it also is established before the situation arises. Clearly defined boundaries, and it occurs before the situation arises. I call this um, uh, predetermination, just deciding ahead of time, determining ahead of time what my course of action is going to be, my action plan. It's exponentially easier, you guys, to avoid temptation when you've already made the decision ahead of time than when you're trying to make a decision in the heat of the moment. I've made a lot of these uh, 
predetermined decisions in my life. I don't, um, I don't ride in cars with other women. I don't, um, you know, I don't spend one-on-one time. Uh, you know, I, I've predetermined certain things to guard my marriage and to guard my heart as a man so that nothing in my life even gives the appearance of evil because it's not always the wrongdoing. Sometimes it's even just the appearance of a wrongdoing. But what are the ways that we can predetermine, predecide ahead of time what to do? Because once we start dipping our toes in the water and we're like, well, I don't know, we'll just kind of see where it goes and I'm sure we'll be able to kind of stop when, when we need to, it doesn't happen. There's a story of uh, Eskimos and how they hunt wolves. Um, I don't know if it's true or not. I, it's, it's a little bit of a, um, I don't know, uh, less colorful story, but I'm going to tell it anyway. But it's, it's said that Eskimos will take a knife and they'll sharpen it to a, a razor's edge. And they'll dip it in seal blood. And when it freezes, they'll dip it in seal blood again until this blade is a large blood popsicle, essentially coagulated around the knife. And then they'll take the knife and they'll bury it in the snow so that the handle is firmly planted in the snow, and then they'll leave. And the wolves from a very large circumference will smell that seal blood. They'll be attracted to it. They'll come and they'll begin to lick the blood of the seal. And they're like, wow, this is, you know, they're wolves, right? That's what they do. But what's happening is as they are consuming the blood of the, the, um, the seal blood that's around the blade, eventually it exposes this razor blade of a knife that's behind it. And after a while, it begins to lacerate the tongue of the wolf. At this point in time, it's so, it, it, its cravings are so great and it's so consumed with getting as much of this as it can that it continues more and more voraciously to continue to consume and consume until it dies of blood loss. And, I, and again, I, I know that's really a, kind of a gruesome story. But the point behind it is that when we allow ourselves to, to partake in, in certain things that we know we ought to be staying far away from, that we know we ought to be fleeing from, when there are things that we think, well, I'm just going to give a little bit of a sampling here, I'm going to give a little bit of a, a test there, and we don't have an action plan behind it, we haven't predetermined what we're going to do, all of those things can cr- create Tremendous damage, and it can actually become self-consuming. A couple of areas that you might want to talk about boundaries. Dating. If you're dating somebody, talk about it together. What are we going to do? What are we not going to do? What situations are we going to be in and not be in? We're not going to compromise. We're going to decide it. We're going to figure it out, and that's what we're going to do. What about your online habits? Do you have accountability there? Are you going to just dip your toes into looking at just a little bit of this or that? Because it... You know, there's, it's such a pernicious problem that we have to create boundaries and we have to do it ahead of time. The third A in our uh, tactics is alternatives. Alternatives. God did create us as passionate beings and he created us with deep desires and he intended us to experience pleasure. He just did. That's how God made us. But the qualifier, again, is that it's in the right ways, in the right context, at the right time. And under this tactic, it's the idea that we have many pleasurable alternatives that we can pursue. Think of the multitude of ways that we can enjoy God's great gifts. The things that can trigger the pleasure center in our brain while still honoring Jesus. Maybe it's an intense workout. 
Maybe it's a uh, kind of a multi-sensory enjoying of a gourmet meal. Maybe it's a deep, meaningful, meaningful conversation with a friend. Or maybe it's a high adventure uh, sport that you have. Maybe it's um, some sort of art. Maybe it's uh, worship. Whatever it is, what is that thing that creates this dopamine response in our brain? And pursue those things. Those are good gifts from God that we can pursue. And our brain can literally be trained to pursue those things in place of participating in sexual behavior that's not at the right time and in the right place. The fourth A is accountability. Accountability. God designed us for fellowship with one another. And at times, people rely on our support. And at other uh, times, we rely on the support of other people. A couple just real quick bits of um, advice for these two categories. When people confide something in us, especially when it relates to something really personal like uh, you know, a sexual struggle or uh, area of temptation, how we respond to that is tremendously important. In fact, um, depending on who that person is to us and, and what they're going to reveal, it can sometimes sort of trigger this really emotional response. But if we find ourselves responding in a very extreme kind of shaming, I can't believe, you know, uh, t- type of um, resentful way, there's two things that are going to happen with a person that's shared. First of all, they're going to conclude that you're no longer a safe place. This is not a person I should talk to about this because of the way that they responded and reacted. And the second thing is going to happen is it's going to drive their sin further underground. I tried to talk about this. I tried to share it, but you know what? That totally blew up. So I just have to do a better job of hiding it. We always have to be thinking, how do I help this person find victory in this area? How do we, how do we help them through it? And the second thing that we always have to do is point people to the truth. Sometimes the truth isn't easy. But God has called us to speak the truth, particularly the truth of his word. If you have a believer that's dating an unbeliever and there's pressure to do things that they shouldn't or whatever else, it's like, I don't know if that's really the relationship that God would have you in. He says, don't be yoked together with unbelievers. I just, I love you, I care about you, and I just need you to hear that. You know, there's, there's, we need to be willing to speak the truth. Now, what about our own areas of hang-ups or temptations? Um, those are things that we need to drag into the light. Like a black mold, sin will continue to multiply in the darkness. The very act of sharing our struggle could be the most difficult step, but it is oftentimes the one that takes the biggest load off of our shoulders. Finally, I can stop playing the game. Finally, I can stop trying to hide this and trying to go through the motions of I'm okay. And there's this huge weight off. Drag it into the light, find a trusted person, and confess that to them so that together you can work through that. And the last thing about accountability is be honest. Be honest. It does nobody any good to just speak platitudes in an accountability relationship. Accountability is only as effective as transparency. Accountability is only as effective as transparency. So these tactics are going to help you, they're going to help me to live out God's best and eventually enjoy the fullness of a marriage relationship without regret. Now as I wrap up, um, I, I just want to recognize that I know that there's uh, in a room this size probably some people who are 
uh, thinking. You remember I said at the beginning, all of us have different perspectives and experiences and different uh, sexual viewpoints on things. But inevitably, there's people in this room thinking, is it too late for me? I've already done things. I've already kind of messed up. I've given in to some temptations. I've seen things that I just simply can't take back. Or maybe there's other people who are thinking to themselves, um, I've been hurt by other people. The decisions of somebody else has caused me hurt. And um, I, I would do anything to be able to reverse that, but I can't. Um, I'm kind of the, the victim in that circumstance. And I, if that's you, I, I want you to know that my heart goes out to you. And um, it's not your fault. It's never your fault. It never was. Um, but in both of these cases, I just want um, all of us to know just a few closing things. First of all, you do not have to live in shame. You do not have to live in shame. No matter your background, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've seen, you do not have to live in shame. The Bible says that the sacrifice of Jesus covers a multitude of sins, including mine, including yours, and there's no pit too deep and no place too dark that his mercy and his grace and his redeeming love can't reach you. You do not need to live in shame. Secondly, you are still, you will always be his beloved child. You are a son, you are a daughter of the King of Kings, and that will not change. We did nothing to earn our salvation, and we can do nothing to lose it. It's all by God's grace. It's a gift. God says he'll never leave you, he'll never forsake you, and he will never stop loving you. Third, it's never too late for a fresh start. It's not too late. A lot of people think, well, if I've already done X, Y, and Z, it's too late. I might as well keep doing X, Y, Z, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, J, K. No, it's never too late for a fresh start. God says, my mercies are new every morning. And as we think about this, instead of succumbing to the fact that, you know, I've already made mistakes, maybe we can allow our experiences and failures to just remind us afresh of God's amazing grace and the fact that he redeemed us and loved us and that he will help us to chart a new path forward. And finally, this is a mantra, it's not mine, but I love uh, what it means. It says, what you've done or what's been done to you never defines you. What you've done or what's been done to you does not define you. So this has been a less than brief overview of God's uh, idea, his um, summary in, in his word of sexuality and purity in the life of a believer. And I hope that there's even a few things that you can take away from tonight and apply to your lives. I'm going to pray and then um, uh, I will dismiss you guys. Um, actually, I think Brian might be coming up. Um, or Bianca. Okay, let's pray. Lord, we just thank you that we have the ability to talk about matters of sexuality and purity. We know it's relevant in all of our lives in one way or the other. And even in the midst of this incredibly noisy world and the world that looks a lot like Corinth, God, I know that there's so much to consider and make decisions about. But in all of these things, in these areas of our life, I just pray that you would help us to remain centered on you and your will, help us to trust your perfect plan for us and your timing, and help us to have full confidence that your very best for us is always at hand. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.